So, good evening. It's always met with a rapturous response on a silent retreat. So, this is the time that we congratulate you for still being here after 24 hours of hard labor. (laughs) The, The good news is you're still here, willing and ready to practice. So, maybe not quite as easy or as grand as the fantasies that you'd imagine that this retreat to be, perhaps. Who knows? I was thinking about a story that uh, I actually never made it to my first retreat. I I signed up for my retreat and I drew and I took the train, this is in England, to the train station in Brighton, some, some small station near Brighton on the south coast, and there's lots of weird-looking people at the train station. And I thought, I bet they're going to the retreat. I bet it's full of weirdos. <laughs> so I took the first train home. <laughs> that was my grand start to meditation. So, so after a day of meditation, you might relate to this comic uh, this, uh, from Bizarro, who does very funny comic cartoons. And uh, there's an audience watching somebody meditate on the stage, and it's, so you think you can meditate, as in, so you think you can dance, and it's not very exciting reality show. (laughs) But one day we keep thinking, someone's going to come here and make a reality show of this. Interview, interview in the bushes. Oh, I think that's terrible. Too much tofu here, you know. <laughs> Those meditation teachers. Oh. So. This is also the time, this day anyway, the first day is often a time of a lot of doubt. Like, why did I come here? Why am I doing this? Why am I depriving myself of cappuccino or beer or movies or who knows what you're missing and wanting and uh, somebody once said in uh, at Spirit Rock she said I could have gone to Napa Valley and be sipping Chardonnay at a spa but I chose to do a retreat what's up with that (laughs) and someone said I'd rather be at work (laughs) which I thought which I thought was a sad state of affairs You know, we come on retreat and we we confront ourselves very nakedly, uh, somewhat rudely and undistractedly, which can be a little bit of a shock because we're not necessarily used to doing this in in our lives and our culture. And we also get in touch with perhaps at times a more existential sort of, what uh, what is this all about? What is this human life? There was a cartoon in the the staff dining room that I thought really spoke to this uh, reflection so this cartoon with three uh, captions, and the first one says, the history of man, and the second one, someone's in the, in the picture thinking, what the hell is happening? And the third caption, the end. <laughs> so you're in the middle phase. What the hell is happening? <laughs> what is this being human? What is this life? What is this having a body and that does its thing and... We have to feed it and stuff dead plants and animals and into it and comes out the other end. And what, what is this awareness that, that we're knowing and we're seeing? We can know the cosmos and we can know microscopic moments in our experience. What, it's a mystery, right? If we're not, there's that you know, the bumper sticker that says, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. I would create one that says, if you're not in absolute wonder and awe and mystery you're not paying attention because it's amazing this world you step outside and you see the glory of winter the sunshine the snow and snow what's an, what an amazing thing snow is it disappears into water and ice and so what i want to talk about tonight is a little bit of an overview of uh, the practice and the path of mindfulness uh, it's a huge subject, so I'm, I'm really only going to uh, make some pointers, uh, both in our experience and practice here on retreat, but also uh, to speak to some of what the Buddha had to say about mindfulness from the original texts. And hopefully it will give a little more context to the, 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 
the practice of sitting and walking and cultivating awareness. So for me, um, I started practicing mindfulness uh, in the early 80s in London and um, was, uh, I started as a, I, I had a, I started with a white mohawk. Uh, I was a punk rocker, anarchist. Uh, I was involved in this at the original um, Occupy London 25 years ago. Um, and was really angry and confused as, as often we are as, as young men and women. And um, I stumbled across this Buddha center and I, and I saw that these people had something going on. I didn't know what it was, but they had a lot of clarity and peace. And I thought, I, I want some of that. And so I started practicing mindfulness. And I was amazed how it transformed me. And, and, and watching over these years, seeing um, how much awareness has grown and how much facility to work with my mind and work with my emotions and, and to work with really difficult, dark, painful states that come up as we move through our lives. Um, and also I learned the, the, the practice of metta at the same time and saw how that practice really transforms the heart, really through a slow, kind process of kind of excavation. It really uh, opens and deepens the quality of compassion to ourselves and to others. So I took to retreat like a duck to water. I came here a lot, like Spring did, sat a lot in England and Asia, um, and really took refuge in this practice and, and found retreat practice some of the most joyful times of my life. And I was teaching a class recently uh, at Spirit Rock. I teach this year-long class called Essential Dharma, where we cover the foundations of Buddhist practice. And at the end of that course, a woman came up to me and said, you know, I just want to tell you what happened to me during this year. Um, we meet once a week. Uh, we sit together and we, there's a Dharma teaching. And she said, this whole year I'm a transformed person after doing the class. And I said, well, how, how, what do you make of that? She said, well, when I came, I came because I was about to get fired from my job. She's a psychiatric nurse who works with the homeless, and, um, which is a really intense job. And for whatever reason, she was in a lot of staff conflict. And uh, she was going to get fired, and so she thought she'd better get her, her stuff together. So she came on this meditation course. And after 10 weeks, the first, 10, the first semester, people were saying, what has happened to you? What are you doing? You completely changed. And after the, uh, the year, she was getting these glowing reports um, from supervisors, and, and, and just the whole, the whole relationship in her work life was transformed because of this practice because of the seeds that get, that get watered and grow uh, as we become more aware, as we become more kind, as we become more self-understanding, as we become more forgiving. So and sometimes in the, in the minutia of following the tedium of your breath going in and out for the 976th time, that meditation, it can be hard to relate, well, what's this got to do with my life? What's this got to do with my suffering? What's this got to do with liberation? What's this got to do with transforming the world? Well, it has everything to do with all of those things, actually. But sometimes the links are not so obvious. But um, hopefully uh, tonight I will make some of those links a little clearer. Um, but safe to say for now that however we treat any moment is indicative and reflective of how we are in the world. And we are the world. We are transforming the world one person at a time, i.e. ourselves. So how we relate to our breath or our steps or our carrots or our yogi job or our neighbor or our roommate is how we relate to everything. And so we get to see how what quality we bring to, to each and every moment. And that is what causes the cloud and the insight to arise. The Buddha said, "Mindful." The Buddha said, "Just as in the last month of the rains in autumn, when the sky is clear and cloudless, and the sun ascending the sky overpowers the space immersed in darkness, shines and blazes forth and dazzles. In the same way, all skillful qualities are rooted in mindfulness, converge in mindfulness, and mindfulness is reckoned the foremost among them." So it's understood in Buddhist quality that. Not only is, is, is mindfulness a quality of attention, but it's a quality in the mind that gathers wholesome 
forces to it. So an example, um, a really adept uh, burglar is not practicing mindfulness because in that, in that, in the, in that action of theft, he's, that person is drawing a lot of negative qualities into the mind stream, whereas mindfulness actually draws positive, wholesome qualities. So we make a distinction depending on the, the intention of the action. So we've been practicing mindfulness for 24 hours. So what is mindfulness? I mentioned yesterday a little about what mindfulness is, and we've said this through the day what mindfulness is. What is mindfulness? Anybody like to say? What have you learned so far? What is mindfulness? Just in a word or two, just shout out. Presence. Presence. Awareness. Awareness. Slowing down. down. Seeing what's going on. on. Acceptance. Acceptance. Gentle noticing. Gentle noticing. Lovely. Yeah, so these are all different facets or qualities of mindfulness, and we could, you know, we could go on for a long time. Um, and it's important to know what mindfulness is for yourself, and sometimes it may take a while to get to understand this subtle quality. Um, I like to think of it as knowing what's what, knowing what is, knowing the truth that's, that's before us in the moment. Like this cartoon from Gary Larson, who's a great Dharma teacher, um, from the far side, and we're, we're kind of on the far side over here. So uh, there's a bunch of cows eating grass, and there's one looking up around, startled, and the cow, and he's saying, "Hey, wait a minute! This is grass. We've been eating grass." <laughs> <laughs> so we wake up, you know. Maybe we, you know we wake up in the day and we see, "Oh my God, I'm." all over the place. What about that? I, know, I thought I was so together and calm and I'm so reactive. As soon as someone coughs, I want to kill them. What's, wow, I didn't realize I was so aggressive. So the Buddha gave some interesting similes for mindfulness, which I think gives, helps give a little reference point for the different facets. One of them was um, this idea of the cow herder. So uh, if you go to India, you'll see a lot of young cow herders who are tending the bullocks and the cows as, as, so they don't go into, stray into uh, rice paddies and things. And, um, but the analogy was uh, a cow herder who's sitting relaxed in the shade under a tree watching the cows. So he's not over the cows with a stick and prodding and poking. And, no, he's very relaxed, very open awareness, but attentive enough to, to the extent necessary to get to do what's appropriate in the moment. Yeah, so it's a relaxed attention, spacious. Another analogy was the watchtower, like standing on top of a watchtower and looking down and having a great uh, panorama of, 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 of view so we can see the bigger picture. And the opposite to that is a surgeon. It's like he's, he's likened to a surgeon's probe. I don't know what surgeon's probes were like, 2,600 years ago, they were probably pretty blunt, but anyhow, but right now they're very precise. So a surgeon's probe, right? So we get a sense of, yeah, m- mindfulness can be very broad, open awareness, but it also can be very microscopic. Um, also referred to as a gatekeeper, like in the old towns where there would be somebody standing at the, at the gate of the, the main entrance to a town, a fortified town, and the gatekeeper would guard against uh, unwholesome forces from entering the town, the same way mindfulness guards, helps guard the mind stream from uh, slipping into negative, unwholesome states. There's also a lovely contemporary image of um, this idea of a surfer, uh, uh, of someone who learns how to ride the waves, right? Life is full, constantly throwing waves and storms at us. And in, in, as a surfer, we learn how to ride those waves. So one of the things that hopefully you're no- noticing, at least getting t- tastes of, um, is that everything is worthy of mindfulness and that nothing has any greater or lesser importance from the perspective of mindfulness. And as we become more present, it's like the world starts to become more luminous, become more 
uh, awake becomes more clear. Uh, and we get moments, maybe you look outside or you take a walk and you see the, the light on the snow or on the trees or the look in someone's eye. And it's like, wow, it's like I've never seen so clearly before. There's a poem that I love from Mary Oliver, a wonderful nature poet, where she writes, uh, she's talking about drinking water, which is a very ordinary, common thing, but the way, from a poetic, mindful sensibility, it's a very different thing. She writes, a black water pond, the tossed waters have settled after a night of rain. I dip my cupped hands. I drink a long time. It tastes like stone, like leaves, like fire. It falls, it falls cold into my body, waking the bones. I hear them inside me whispering, Oh, what was that beautiful thing that just happened? What was that beautiful thing that just happened? That beautiful thing that just happened was she drank some water. But she drank some water with presence. When we do anything with presence, it's miraculous, can be miraculous. Just like when we see a child walking when they're one years old, it's miraculous. Maybe that raisin was miraculous today. So mindfulness as the basis for insight, for vipassana, for seeing clearly, uh, is, is why we do this practice. We, we develop mindfulness to develop what's called satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. To understand what's true, to understand how we suffer, to understand how we can be free from the pain that we cause ourselves. So the first insight that we have, the first clarity that we often have, and this was clear in the groups today, is how much we are not present, how much we are lost in our coconut up here, how much we are lost in thought. Buddhadasa, a great Thai meditation master, when when he was asked about his Western students, he said three words, lost in thought. We are lost in thought. Anybody <laughs> noticed? <laughs> Anybody been thinking a lot? So Stanford, uh, some research that came out of Stanford University suggested we think somewhere between 60 to 90,000 thoughts a day, which is a lot of thoughts. It works out about one a second, or mass or menos, which is, you know, if you think about how many seconds there are in a 45-minute meditation, that's, that's a few hundred thoughts, or maybe even a few thousand, I don't know. Um, and yet we have this idea that, we, that, we, that the bell goes, and suddenly the thoughts will switch off for 45 minutes. Well, wrong planet. <laughs> one of the things we get to work with, it, we get to see the patterns and the tendencies of mind. And one of the patterns that we're mostly addicted to in this time is thinking. We, you know, we, 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 we could really put a big chalice on there full of thoughts and worship them, because that's really what we do in this culture. With our universities, we, we spend we know how many, 10, 20 years in educational institutions learning how to think, and learn. it's a great thing to learn how to think, learn how to think clearly, um, creatively, how to write, and yet we've uh, developed it so much that it's taken over. The thinking mind has, has run amok. So, as they say, the, the thinking mind makes a, a terrible master and a wonderful uh, servant. But as we see in meditation, mostly we're in its grip and it's very unpleasant. This is a Buddhist cartoon. Uh, there's a t- meditation master with his student and the master saying, I have never met anyone so thoughtless in my life. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Thank you, Master. But as we have been saying, the point isn't to get rid of thoughts. Thoughts aren't the problem. It's our relationship to thoughts that we need to look at. It's our addiction and the compulsiveness around the thoughts and our, and our capacity to be lost in the thoughts. Because yeah? thoughts will always come and go. 
unawakened mind, awakened mind, thoughts will come. That's the nature of it's the nature of thought is a sense organ. Ears think, eyes see, minds think. But we also can train our attention not to be so consumed and fascinated with what's going on in this coconut. I was teaching a retreat at Spirit Rock the other year, and uh, this one, we are, and the Spirit Rock has, it's a very complicated archit- uh, building. There's lots of, it's a very high roof and lots of beams and buttresses and all kinds of interesting things. And uh, this one architect said he spent the whole retreat figuring out the lines and which were the beams that were holding the weight and how he would have done it differently. And, and then we had a, I think it was the same retreat or another retreat, we had an interior designer. We just painted the back wall of behind the, the Buddha. And so, of course, you as yogis, meditators, were looking at it all week and he, kept, he had a whole thing about the color and the tone and all of that. So um, another person on retreat told me, that she'd been fantasizing about this unavailable man for three years. And I thought, wow. And I said, so is that long enough? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how long is long? How long (laughs) is sufficient? So it's interesting what we get fixated on. I notice when I'm on retreat, I fantasize a lot about my next retreat. (laughs) This is great, but what about when I do this longer retreat? Or I go to you know, Thailand to do a retreat. Ah, that'd be even more interesting. So, and then there's the patterns of daydreaming, not just no, no, when we're not so much thinking, but we're just checked out, where we're spaced out, and we're just sort of not in sort of la-la land, somewhere, we're not quite sure where, but we know, well, we don't know where. Um, uh, I think it was Harvard did some research recently on daydreaming. Uh, not quite sure how they define daydreaming, but I think it was. I think it more included the the fantasy kind of daydreaming where we're, we're imagining, you know, going on vacation or lunch or something. And uh, they tracked people. I think twenty thousand people over a period of time, and they worked out that the average person daydreams. Guess how much a day, just percentage wise. Twenty five. Forty. Hundred <laughs> percent. Now we're getting self-revealing here. Now, forty-five point nine percent, or forty-six percent. That amazing. Forty-six percent of the day, we are somewhere else other than here. Makes me scared to drive across the road. Or, you know. So, but what was most interesting about the study is that uh, they also asked how people felt after daydreaming. Like, and you'd think, oh, daydreaming, thinking about holidays and loved ones, that they'd feel good. They actually felt worse than before they were daydreaming because they were fantasizing about something good that was better than where they were in the present moment, and it made the, the, the present moment feel deficient, which is what we do all the time. It's what was the, the, the grasping tendency of mind that, that the Buddha talks so much about. It, it, it impoverish, impoverishes us in the present moment by believing happiness is somewhere else, in some better place. Like in the Bahamas in January. Um, so what else do we see? We, we see how we are uh, pain avoidant, how we try to avoid every kind of unpleasantness and of course, here there's not many places to escape from it. But you've probably seen how many ways you try, how many cups of tea you can have, <laughs> how many times you can read the notice board, how many times you can unpack and pack your bag or something just to not be with yourself or with that emptiness or with that loneliness or with that sadness or with that boredom. Yeah, I think we live, we live in this culture. I said this in a group today that we live in a, in a culture that's terrified of boredom. You know, we sell so much stuff so people won't be bored for a millisecond. You know, quick text or do something. So we have to just be. So 
So um, I thought I'd speak a little to this important list that the Buddha, uh, this facet of our experience that we that is encountered a lot on retreats, especially on the first few days, um, uh, which is the uh, the understanding of um, uh, obstacles to meditation practice. So. Um, um, you know, so we've given the instructions to pay attention, to be present, to follow your breath, to be practice metta, and then you see all the all the ways aside from thinking and spacing out all the different ways you may be noticing that it's hard to be here. So the Buddha categorizes in five different ways uh, called the hindrances, and so the first of those, which I spoke to a little, is the hindrance of doubt, uh, the doubting mind. What am I doing here? Who are these teachers? What is this place? Who am I to meditate? I can't meditate. I can never do anything well. I've never been able to do anything spiritual. I know what I'm doing here. I should be playing hockey or soccer or something or swimming. Does the voice sound familiar? I can't do this. This is too hard. I should just go have a cup of tea and have an early night, go and take a bath and throw the towel in and come back next year. Or when I retire, I'll do all this spiritual stuff. Oh, I am retired. Oh, okay. Well, um, in the summer, it's too hot in winter. So the doubting mind. So notice when this, this voice manifests as a voice of reason. Oh, you're tired. Take it easy. You can skip the next few sittings. Go take a walk. Go take a rest. Good to recognize. Oh, this is doubt. Doubt. I see you. The next uh, most common pervasive hindrance is the hindrance of, of wanting of longing, of grasping, of holding on, of attaching, of craving, thirst, the Buddha called it, tanha. So um, in an environment where the, which is very simple and ordinary and unstimulating, guess what happens? The mind goes, hmm, God, I love some chocolate. Hmm, what about a coffee and some pizza? And uh, right, how, many, how many desires have you had today? Yeah? A lot, right? Probably, if you're human, right? Desires are endless, and they, they move through the mind, heart, yeah? With the grip of, oh, just that. If I just had brought my nice silk scarf, I just, in the meditation, if I just brought my nice cushion, I'd be so in Zen land right now. I'd be in bliss, right? Or my nice pillow, or whatever it is. And so the mind starts longing, oh, this will bring me happiness. This is what we do. We seek. We, we're on a constant treadwheel, hamster wheel, of seek, seeking outside of ourselves for happiness. Some, somebody, a colleague of ours once found somebody in the fridge. He was living upstairs and heard this big kerfuffle in the kitchen. And there was a, a, the yogis that sort of bust into the kitchen and were making all kinds of food. And he walked into the walk-in fridge and this guy had his hand in the dates. And, and my friend said, uh, can I help you? And he said, yeah, I'm looking for the maintenance department. <laughs> so we'll do anything to escape ourselves, right? Including, you know, dates work really well if you can't find anything else. So anything that for stimulation. You know, it's like Sunday morning where we're bored. So we, what do we do? We, we, we look at that pile of catalogs that have come through the letterbox and we start looking for something to desire looking for something to want. And we were feeling quite content until we started looking through the you know, REI catalog and, oh, I need to get this new backpacking equipment. That's exciting. And we start wanting. And So pay attention to the wanting mind, to the longing mind, to the, that feels deficient and empty if we don't, that feels lacking. In particular, notice the belief. Oh, if I get this, if I have this, if I own this, if I control this, if I have more of these, I'll be happy, right? Well, you've all got tons of stuff and tons of things and tons of experiences. And what happened? They haven't worked. I mean, they work for a moment or two. You know, we like our stereos or our cars or whatever. But it doesn't actually quench that unquenchable thirst. Only, only seeking that inside of ourselves, which is the true source of happiness, ends that belief in that happiness is really found from the outside. So the converse, the flip side of um, the, the wanting is, is, the, is aversion, is resistance, is not wanting, not liking this experience. 
Anybody had any aversion today? <laughs> Probably a lot. Either to the food, or to your body, or to your neighbors, or to the weather, or to the color of the walls. Who knows? I mean, the aversive mind is, is tenacious in finding something not to like. You know? So, And it's good to have a sense of humor with all of this, right? So I'm pointing all this stuff out, not for you to judge yourselves, not to go, oh, I'm bad because I've got this wanting or this aversion, but to say, no, it's part of the human dilemma of having all these things that come through us and to hold them in awareness. When we hold them in awareness, we're then no longer gripped by them. When we're no longer gripped by them, then it's, they can be free to come and go. Oh, I walk into a room and I'm feeling resistant because it's cold. I know, oh, it's because I'm cold. I don't like being cold. And suddenly I start seeing everything through that lens of negativity. So mindfulness helps illuminate these things, helps illuminate, oh, this is aversion. Aversion is like this. When I'm aversive and I'm in the dining room and there's not enough food and I'm looking at all these people with big plates, I'm flooded with judgment and jealousy and envy and resistance. So I did a lot of practice in India, as um, many people have done over the years, and I want to share one story which illuminates this, and it's, um, uh, and I'll say why I'm why I'm saying this story uh, afterwards. Uh, so I was meditating in this place called the Thai Temple in Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha got enlightened. Wonderful place to practice, except it was all made of concrete, nothing soft fabric or anything noise reducing whatsoever. So, and the village had grown up around the monastery, so we got a lot of village noise, and sometimes that was lovely, and sometimes that was challenging. Uh, This year, a a travel agency had set up shop outside the retreat center, and they put a loudspeaker on top of their shop, shack, uh, which they often do, um, with a blown out loudspeaker, and they ran a little tape loop, cassette tape. This was a while ago. Remember cassette tapes? And uh, the tape loop ran. It was a travel agency. Uh, they were advertising to Tibetan pilgrims walking past. And the tape loop would go, hello, 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 well, hello. And you would grab your attention. And then there were a bunch of words in Hindi I didn't understand. And then uh, Darjeeling, Calcutta, Delhi, Bombay, Varanasi, a few other towns around India, and then rewind. Hello, 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 hello. And you, every time you come on, you wait, it's like, <laughs> you're deep in the meditation. <laughs> and this was like day two of a 20-day retreat. You know, this was like, this is like, I mean, imagine it's like in the courtyard out there, the loudspeaker, hello, hello, hello. <laughs> And of course, we think, you know, we're on retreat. Don't you know that we're in silence and uh, 20 days and we're going to go crazy? And, and the teacher wouldn't let us outside of the retreat, so we couldn't do any nonviolent direct action. We just had to, <laughs> you know, send the meta or something to, you know, we prayed for the Indian electricity to black out, which it did frequently, um, so we get some rest. And it was, you know, it drove, it drove me nuts for a while. Just, I can't believe this, 20 days, I can't do it. It's just, you know... And then, of course, you know, if you can't control something, at some point you have to let go, otherwise you go nuts. So at some point the mind relaxes, as it does often in places like India where, where you're, you're, sort of, you're just forced to, otherwise you're miserable. And, um, uh, and at some point it just became sound. It just became like the breeze, like people talking, like dogs barking. It just became white noise. And uh, a few days after that, it just became humorous. Every time we come, it's, oh, that's a traveler. Oh, I hope they've sold some tickets. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, but the, the, teaching, the, the, the teaching for me around that was I didn't have to get rid of the thing that I thought was causing me suffering for me to be at peace. Peace is in the mind. Peace arises in the mind's relationship to experience. It's not about getting rid of the object you don't like. You know, if I had a choice and I could have moved to a nice mountaintop, that retreat, well, yeah, I, if I had a choice, I, I, that would be a nice thing to do. But it wasn't a choice. So we had to, and mostly the, the difficulty in our lives is our choice. We have to sit in the middle of our chronic illness or our partner with 
uh, a disease or with our children who are suffering at school or the state of the environment or, 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 or. There's so many things that we have no control over or little control over and we have to work with our mind around it. And the Dharma teaching is saying we can be at peace and at ease and our hearts open even in very difficult, distressing circumstances. The last two hindrances are more physical. One is restlessness and agitation. The restlessness of the mind that can't sit still, it's like it's had too much caffeine, often triggered by remorseful thoughts from the past or anxious thoughts about the future, like that Mark Twain phrase, the worst things in my life never actually happened, but I spent my whole retreat thinking about them. Um, And then the quality of sloth, and this is a very popular uh, state on the first day of retreat. It looks like this. I think I'm present. I think I'm awake. I am. I'm really awake. <laughs> it's called the nodding practice. <laughs> so, with all these hindrances, the point is to simply recognize them as they arise to hold them in mindfulness, to hold them with kindness, to hold them with compassion. We didn't ask to be sleepy during the meditation. We didn't ask to be caught in a whole multiple hindrance attack where we're feeling doubting and fearful and hating and greedy at the same time. They just arise. And so it's so important to have kindness and compassion for what arises in ourselves or what arises in others. If we are able to hold ourselves to relate to ourselves with some gentleness, with some kindness, with some responsiveness, then most likely when that happens to people we're around, to our friends, to our loved ones, we're going to have that response. If we, if we can't deal with the aversion and the greed in ourselves, guess what happens when we meet an aversive, greedy person? We're going to go, oh, that's bad. I don't like that because we can't deal with it in ourselves. So, um, mindfulness, hindrances. So, we start where we are. We start with the body. And the the first foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha taught in the the teaching called the Satipatthana Sutta, which lays out, the foundations of mindfulness and the basis of mindfulness and Vipassana practice begins with the body, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness centered in the body. He said, there is one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It is mindfulness centered in the body. So he's saying a lot of things are possible. Vision, knowledge, happy life here and now. So this is kind of a koan, like a a mysterious question to reflect on. How is it that the Buddha is saying to be mindful of the body leads to liberation? That's something you can reflect on in your time here. I'm not necessarily going to give you the answer to that. I'm going to point to that. So we start with the body, we start with the breath. We've been paying a lot of attention to breath today. And we can see that being mindful of the breath or the body, it's a microcosm for how we relate to everything. Are we controlling the breath? Are we bored by the breath? Are we trying to do the breath? Are we trying to make it interesting? Are we trying to, what's our relationship? Our relationship to all of these things reveal our relationship to life. What's your relationship to your body? Do you notice you have a body? Mostly we live in our eyebrows upwards. We live through our eyes and our ears, and we notice our body when it's a drag. It's tired, it's hungry, it's ill. And then we get annoyed with it. And then we do something and hope it gets better. And, um, but the body is a, is a wonderland, and... Uh, an amazing place to ground awareness. As I said yesterday, the body is always in the present moment. So, do you want to be present? (laughs) 
Is that a silly question? How, how many people want to be present? <laughs> yeah. Well, the body is always in the present. That's not actually so difficult. To remember to inhabit the body. That's why we do walking practice. I have so appreciated walking practice. I can't say how much I've gleaned from walking practice. However humdrum and tedious and inconsequential it may feel in the moment, trust my, I can trust my own experience over years and years of doing walking practice. I feel so grounded when I walk in my life all the time. Walking upstairs, walking through Safeway, walking on hikes, which I do a lot. There's just, it's trained me to be in my body. It's trained me to feel my feet. It's trained me to feel the earth. When I sit down in my car or my desk, I'm in my body. And it's a really nice thing to, to do. It feels really healthy and grounded. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that to, to encourage you to, uh, see, to, to see that there's virtue in these very simple practices that may seem like they're irrelevant to your life. You know, we want to be grounded and centered when we're in a conflict at work or when somebody's, we're in some disagreement with a friend. That's when we want to be rooted and grounded in the body, right? You want to be in your belly, in your feet, in your legs, grounded with the earth. That's why we practice. So we train ourselves. This is from Suzuki Roshi. Um, talking about why we practice. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life, not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love, and then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally, you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries, and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. So we practice here, not so we become wonderful cushion-sitting meditators, although that may happen, that's not a bad thing. The point is to bring this liberating quality of presence and awareness into everything that you do. This is from a great Thai meditation master called Achan Mun, who was Achan Cha's teacher, teacher of many teachers in this tradition. Achaman said, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Never allow the mind to leave the body. Or you could say, never allow the body to leave the mind. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See its impermanent, unsatisfactory, and selfless nature while sitting, walking, standing, and lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. And in this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. Never, in your investigation of the world, in your practice of mindfulness, never allow the mind to leave the body. So as you walk, as you shower, as you eat, as you lie down, as you rest, as you bathe, as you dress and undress, Be in your body. Slow down. What's it like just to be present to taking a sweater off, tying your shoelace? Every moment is as important as every other moment. And this body is a wonderland. This body is an amazing thing. Just watching the breath breathe itself 17 times a minute or whatever it does. Or the heartbeat, the millions of times the heart just beating for you, just for you, to keep you alive. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful gift. Yeah. Or the way the hair keeps growing. Or you get a cut and the scabs come and it heals itself. How amazing. You don't look so thrilled. Okay, in this next sentence, 50,000 of those beloved cells in your body are going to die. But the next sentence, 50,000 will be reborn. It's like a revivalist church in here right now. There's just cells <laughs> coming and going. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Here they are, here I am. Amazing. If you did a six-week retreat here, which we have six-week retreats here, you'd have a completely different liver <laughs> in six weeks. If you sat for three months, you would have new eyebrows. It takes three months for eyebrows. 
But since this is only a two-day retreat or three-day retreat, mm, let me see what I have. Well, if we did here for five days, you'd have a new stomach lining. Amazing. And you didn't, you didn't have to call, you know, Blue Shield or Blue Cross or Kaiser or whoever you were. It just happens. Amazing. So we, you know, I say that to, 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 to fall in love with the body. It's an amazing thing we're inhabiting. Beautiful, mysterious, unique, quirky. And the body reveals so much. It reveals how things change, how things are selfless. I taught a woman in a class at Kaiser uh, teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction for pain patients, chronic pain patients. And um, she, was, she, she came in, into the class after about week five, which is usually when the practice really starts um, having effect um, on noticing things being seen. And she, um, she said, I had this really amazing thing happen in meditation. I said, what was that? She said, well, I've had this chronic pain in my neck for 10 years. I said, uh-huh. And she said, well, I felt it for the first time. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, for the last 10 years, I've had so much pain and so much contraction, so much fear that my whole body's been so tight around it that all I felt is the tension. And in the meditation, I was able to soften and relax enough to actually go right into the heart of it and feel the root pain, the root pain in the neck. And she said, and you know what? It wasn't that bad. It wasn't, it was bearable. Whereas before the concept and the fear and the contraction was, oh, this is unbearable. But mindfulness allows us to penetrate and to get to the root and to see, oh, I can bear this. I can bear, and awareness, mindfulness has a capacity to bear and witness anything and everything. If you think about the horrendous atrocities and pain, self-inflicted, other-inflicted traumas that happen in this life, in this room and elsewhere, and somehow awareness can hold it all miraculously. That's what liberates our capacity to know. What time did this start? 715. So I've got enough for about three talks here. So um, we'll be here till midnight, if that's okay with you. You've got nothing else to do except be mindful. So um, no, I won't. I won't keep you. I know it's it's a lot to take, a lot of information to take in. Um, so So I'll just I'll go through some of the the, the rest of the, uh, the 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 sutta. So um, a couple of phrases I want to point out. The Buddha said the Buddha talked about mindfulness as simple knowing. He said the meditator acts clearly knowing when eating and drinking and tasting and defecating and urinating and walking and standing and sitting and falling asleep and waking up and talking and keeping silent, which basically means there's no breaks. Even in the bathroom, you're encouraged to pee here now, uh, it's a joke, um, <laughs> and um, all of it, to be present for all of it. He said that mindfulness is established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and attention. Achan Shah said, you only need as much mindfulness as it takes to read a book to develop insight. You don't have to be some super yogi, just to be simply present, to see what's true in your experience. So mindfulness of the body, we do that through mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of walking, and then mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of, of noticing the range of pleasant and unpleasant feeling, which move through us like the wind, constantly changing, coming and going. And how we react to things when they're unpleasant, with aversion, reactivity, like I said. How we react with grasping and holding on, if it's pleasant. How we check out if it's neutral. 
how we have a Vipassana vendetta, as Spring said yesterday, how we, we can feel absolute rage because somebody's breathing loudly next to us that we want to behead. Um, I was on a three-month retreat with, sitting next to a loud breather, and um, it was torture. <laughs> he had a great time. <laughs> and I tortured myself with thinking that the breath should be different than it was. That was really the suffering, was me thinking reality should be different than it is. So mindfulness of feelings, of pleasantness of unpleasant, mindfulness of emotions, mindfulness of states of mind. So we'll talk more about that tomorrow, about how to bring mindfulness to the various emotions that come through. Yeah. There's a wonderful cartoon I love um, where there's a man leaning over his big desk uh, with his finger on the intercom to the secretary saying, Miss Jenkins, please get me in touch with my feelings. So that's often how we are. It's like, uh, could somebody tell me what I'm feeling, please? Because I have no idea. <laughs> Hello, body, is anybody there? Um, so, uh, you know, often people say, well, I'll often say, well, how are you feeling? Uh, no, nothing's going on. I say, nothing? Really? It's, nothing is some, something is going on in nothing. There's always something. We can guarantee to one thing in this universe. There is always something in awareness. And if, if we think it's nothing, it's more subtle than that. It's either neutral, it's gray, it's bland, it's peaceful, it's calm, it's easy, it's open, it's clear. It's not, never nothing. So if you think nothing's going on, take a look. Take a look at what's knowing nothing. Oh, clarity is knowing. Awareness is knowing nothing. Clarity is knowing nothing. So in mindfulness practice, um, with emotion, we, 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 we practice neither suppressing, which we do a lot in our lives, or acting out, which we also do a lot in our lives. We hold the middle way of feeling, allowing, without acting it out. Very interesting middle ground. So lastly, um, just throw these papers away. Great pearls of wisdom. <laughs> you have to come back for more retreats. Um, what was I wanted to say? <laughs> so, one of the most important things about mindfulness practice, as you may have seen already, is when we're present to something, like with the hindrances, it creates a lot of space around it. And that space we call non-identification. Yeah? So in, there are times when a thought may arise and you're just lost in it like glue. You're at work and you're fighting with your boss and everything's horrible. Another time you're sitting mindful and the thought of your boss arises and you just sit, oh, that's a thought about work and you let it go. That is called disidentification. That is called freedom. When we're not caught up and glued in our experience, in our stuff. We're still present, we're engaged, we're connected, but we're not caught. That is what mindfulness does. It, re- it reveals, it shines a light on something and allows us to disidentify. So rather than being lost in, it's cold and I'm hating everything and I wish everything would just go away to, oh, this is aversion. Aversion feels like this. Aversion feels like contraction. Aversion is suffering. Do you get the difference? And so mindfulness over time, we get more and more uh, glimpses until we establish that sense of knowing where we're just seeing experience and phenomena come and go. Oh, sadness is coming and going. Oh, now my, my, my leg pain is burning, sensations, tingling, burning. And now I'm bored, bored, and boredom's like this. Oh, now I'm feeling like such a mindful yogi. I think I'm going to be a great teacher. Oh, pride, pride. And then, oh, no, and what happens if it changes? Fear, fear. And then it goes on like that. But we reside in this still pond of awareness that, this, that abides freely. The Buddha said, the meditator abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Mindfulness provides that sense of spaciousness and freedom in relationship to. That's why we talk so much about relationship to. 
because that's the pivotal point between being caught in something and just knowing it in awareness. So the last point I want to make is the relationship in Springwell, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow, and Spring will say more too in her talk, um, uh, is the relationship between mindfulness and metta, mindfulness and kindness. We teach them with separate practices. They're really not separate practices. They're really part of... Um, uh, for me, they're one and the same quality. They have different, they're different facets of the lens. Awareness, mindfulness has clarity and knowing to it. Kindness has more heart, connection, uh, relationship to it. Um, but in a moment of presence, in a moment of mindfulness, think about what's there. When we're really present to something, say you're looking at a flower, with great mindfulness. You're connected, you're present, you're open, you're interested, you're curious, you're accepting, you're allowing. There's probably some warmth, there's some, you know, many, many qualities. Think about if you're looking at someone you love. There's connection, there's warmth, there's openness, there's curiosity, there's allowing, there's acceptance. Very similar qualities. There's a lovely line from Mary Oliver, the poet. She says, um, There is nothing in this world, if I pay attention to it long enough, that I don't fall in love with. If there is, I haven't met it yet. When we're really paying attention fully with presence, the heart starts to open. Empathy, the root of empathy is in attention, as it's being now tracked by various neuroscience studies. When we pay attention to ourselves, when we understand our own emotional well-being and our own emotional difficulty, we, we have the skills, the capacity to empathize with another. It's what allows compassion to grow. So notice that relationship. So when, you, when, when we say be mindful, be present to yourself, to be present to yourself with kindness, imbue that with tenderness, with gentleness, with acceptance, with kindness. So I'm going to close um, with a poem that I wrote last year that speaks to this merging. It's called Duty. Your only duty is to try not to run from here, from this. Even if the hole of loss burns deep into your soft belly, even if on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day raw, stripped bare, And it feels like the wind will pierce those empty places, laying you open and exposed. You could pretend to try putting on a face other than your own, or try avoiding the whole damn thing, but that's a game that's never worked, and only burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing, and makes the shell you've chosen to live in that much more empty. But when you surrender, to embrace your loneliness or the starved parts of your being, and you touch the void that you've spent a lifetime running from with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has been waiting, that is always right here. So let's sit for a moment. Just bring a kind, simple presence to where you are, whether that's tired, happy, sad, open. Let the words go and just stay with your body and your breath.
and to, as the Buddha said, meditate, live purely, be quiet, do your work with mastery, like the moon come out from behind the clouds and shine. So thank you for your kind attention. I went a little over there. Please forgive me. I carried away. So we'll have a walking period now. And um, if the bell ring, it could ring the bell um, in 20 minutes. So we'll ring the bell at uh, uh, 20 to 9. We'll have a shorter last sit and we'll do a little chanting in the last sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.